0: Oh, tav katham Sravanamangalam Srimadatatam Sri Madatam, So we will start the new chapter, The Master and Keshav. October 27, 1882. It was Friday, the day of the Lakshmi Puja. Keshav Chandrashen had arranged a boat trip on the Ganges for Sri Ramakrishna. About four o'clock in the afternoon, the steamboat with Keshav and his Brahma followers cast anchor in the Ganges alongside the Kali temple at Dakshineshwar. The passengers saw in front of them the bathing heart and the Chandni. To their left in the temple compound stood six temples of Shiva and to the right another group of six Shiva temples. The white spire of the Kali temple the treetops of the Panchavati and the outline of pine trees stood high against the blue autumn sky. The gardens between the two Nahabats were filled with fragrant flowers and along the bank of the Ganges were rows of flowering plants. The blue sky was reflected in the brown water of the river, the sacred Ganges associated with the most ancient traditions of Aryan civilization. The outer world appeared soft and serene and the hearts of the brahmo devotees were filled with peace. Sri Ramakrishna was in his room talking with Vijay and Haralad. Some disciples of Keshav entered. Bowing to the master, they said to him, sir, the steamer has arrived. Keshav Babu has asked us to take you there. A small boat was to carry the master to the steamer. No sooner did he get into the boat than he lost outer consciousness in Samadhi. Vijay was with him and was among the passengers. As the boat came alongside the steamer, all rushed to the railing to have a view of Sri Ramakrishna. Keshav became anxious to get him safely on board with great difficulty, the master was brought back to consciousness and taken to a cabin in the steamer. Still in an abstracted mood, he walked mechanically, leaning on a devotee for support. Keshav and the others bowed before him, but he was not aware of them. Inside the cabin, there were a few chairs and a table. He was made to sit on one of the chairs Keshav and Vijay occupying two others. Some devotees were also seated, most of them on the floor, while many others had to stand outside. They peered eagerly through the door and windows. Sri Ramakrishna again went into deep samadhi and became totally unconscious of the outer world. As the air in the room was stuffy because of the crowd of people, Keshav opened the windows. He was embarrassed to meet Vijay, since they had differed on certain principles of the Brahmo Samaj and Vijay had separated himself from Keshav's organization, joining another society. The Brahmu devotees looked wistfully at the master. Gradually, he came back to sense consciousness, but the divine intoxication still lingered. He said to himself in a whisper, Mother, why have you brought me here? They are hedged around and not free. Can I free them? So these are the words of the master. Mother, why have you brought me here? They are hedged around and not free. Can I free them? So apparently it may appear as if Sri Ramakrishna seeing the people deluded in ignorance is bit aversive towards them. But it is actually, the fact is just the opposite. He feels extremely compassionate, but seeing the delusion, that the layers of delusion in them, he feels helpless. That in spite of his compassion, just he cannot most probably help them because the delusion is so intense. We will find the same situation in the life of Gautam Buddha. So after his awakening, when Buddha went into Nirvikalpa Samadhi at the age of 40, when he went into that state of Nirvana, he remained at Bodhgaya, that where he went into Nirvana, he remained there for a considerable number of days. And he was considering what to do next. So what he realized that that his realization was something so far outside the ordinary human experience and understanding that he wondered that how he could explain it, how he can relate to the people, his experience. Even according to one of the legend, Buddha did try to describe his realization to a wandering holy man. But the man thought he is most probably a mad person. He couldn't relate to his words. He simply laughed and walked away. So, seeing that, Buddha felt that what's the use of trying to relate my experience to the people? They won't understand. First, he thought, let me give up my body. That he was so much absorbed in his own realization that he was convinced of the fact that the world is a flow. It has nothing to do with our, the peace, tranquility. There is an existence behind that. He was ready to give up this body, this illusion. But then the compassion dawned in him. He he has a great challenge that Buddha had to face, that this compassion made him realize one thing, that he thought that though many won't understand him, But there are a few yearning souls who who will be benefited by his teachings. Means they're trying best their best, they're trying hard to go beyond the delusion, but they need a little help. It's not that all will be liberated. All can go beyond the delusion, but there are a few yearning souls who have progressed a lot, but needs a little help for them with the thought let me continue with my life. And then his preaching starts. He went to Varanasi and his preaching started from Varanasi, the seat of knowledge in those times. So here also we find Sri Ramakrishna, seeing the one in delusion is feeling helpless. That the layers of delusion is so intense that he's asking to the mother, the mother, where have you brought me? I find that they're hedged around and not free. Can I free them? So it is actually a sign of helplessness, not aversion. There's a nice story of five cavemen of Plato. It's a wonderful story that there were five cavemen who were enchained in a cave in such a way that they cannot see outside the cave. They were chained in such a way that they can see only the wall of the cave. They were facing the wall of the cave and sitting and their heads were fixed. So outside the cave, there was a road and there was a fire burning on the side of the cave of the road. The road and the cave in between, there was a fire. Uh, Sorry, the fire was on the other side of the road. And now throughout the day, that road went to the marketplace. Whoever used to travel through that road, carrying cattle, or most probably sitting on some this horse carriage, passing through that, all the noise, everything they can hear. And as the fire is burning and these people are traveling in front of the fire, the shadows fall on the wall of the cave. And these five cavemen throughout their life, as they were enchained, from the very inception of their life, they were only seeing those shadows. And to them, those shadows were the only reality. They thought that's the reality because they cannot turn their head. Their head was fixed in such a way they see the shadows only. Now, one of the cavemen was released. Someone came and released him. So for the first time, he turned around and saw the panorama, the beautiful, scenic beauty of the world. The sun, the horizon, the the greenery, he ran outside. And seeing the expanse of the world, he was extremely ecstatic, was delighted. And then after experiencing the beauty, which was just outside the cave, after some time, he thought of the remaining four cavemen. That they are still deluded. They think those shadows to be real. Actually, the real world is outside. So he came back and started relating to them. So what you see is just a shadow. The reality is just behind you. And these four cavemen, they couldn't in any way relate to the words of this man. They thought he has gone mad. They never believed him. So that's the allegory which we find Plato is using to explain the fact that when a man goes to the realization and he comes back and tries to relate to the world that there is a world to which this is a mere projection. That's the real, that reality. That's the reality. That's our real existence. And we can never relate to his words. And then this caveman who was released feels helpless that he's trying his best to relate his experience but no one is ready to believe him so that shows that the man of realization is relating to some world which we have not experienced as it is beyond the purview of our experience we never believe him we never trust him and the question of following him doesn't arise And this man then feels helpless and that's why we find Sri Ramakrishna, almost like the caveman who was released, is speaking in whisper. What? Mother, why have you brought me here? They are hedged around and not free. Can I free them? Then the master is reflecting. Did the master find that the people assembled there were locked within the prison walls of the world? Again, this is the these words of master exactly resembles Buddha's realization. When Buddha went to realization, the very first thing he thought, "Oh, I was locked in this prison of ignorance for lives together. I never realized that." And that's what master is the the aim is saying. Did the master find that the people assembled here were locked within the prison walls of the world? Did their helplessness make the master address these words to the Divine Mother? Sri Ramakrishna was gradually becoming conscious of the outside world. Neil Madhav of Ghazipur and a Brahmo devotee were talking about Pavari Baba. Another Brahmo devotee said to the master, Sir, this gentleman visited Pavari Baba. He lives in Ghazipur. He is a holy man like yourself. The master could hardly talk, he only smiled. The devotee continued, Sir, Pavari Baba keeps a photograph, keeps your photograph in his room. Pointing pointing to his body, the master said with a smile, just a pillowcase. So just see that Ramakrishna, being a realized soul, is relating to his own body as a pillowcase. His photo, Bhavari Bhava kept in his room. For any of us who are in deep ignorance, it would be a matter of pride we would have been puffed with ego. Oh, someone is keeping my photo. He thinks me great. That would have made me puff with ego. But the reaction of Ramakrishna is wonderful. That it is just the pillowcase, this body, it is just like a pillowcase. The real substance is within. It is like a pillowcase. It has nothing to do with the so-called the real existence of my real existence. So this body, which is a pillowcase for a realized soul, as Sri Ramakrishna in some other place gives an example that when you attain realization, you become like a dried coconut. The coconut when when it is unripe, it is almost impossible to separate the shell from the carnal. It is all intertwined. It's, It's impossible to separate the Shell from the kernel from the core. But when it gets ripened, in your hand you take the ripe coconut and just shake it, you will find that the kernel has got separated from the shell. So for a realized soul, this is an example Sri Ramakrishna is giving some other context. A realized soul realizes the fact that he is the conscious principle, he is the soul. This body-mind complex is just a covering, like a pillowcase. So this body, which is a pillowcase for a realized soul. It is for him it is the pillowcase, but for others, why the photo is being hanged? Why we prayed? Why Pahari Baba has kept that photo for his own inspiration? Because that becomes that pillowcase, the so-called pillowcase, which is the pillowcase for the man of realization. But for others, it becomes an inspiration. it is like an index finger for others, pointing to the moon. This body becomes the index finger. Just the way to show the moon to a small child, we have to use the index finger. If following the index finger, only you can see the moon. Similarly, this body becomes the index finger. That this is the body through which this man went to the realization. And that immediately enkindles the fervor for spirituality in our mind. We get inspired. We try to relate to that life. We try to imitate that life. As Swami Vivekananda used to say, very interesting thing, that what has to be done has been done by us. We have done more than that. And then in Bengali, he used to say, "Tura Shudhu Degeja. This, uh, this word "degija" even in Bengali, is not used nowadays. What it means, that when... The small child for the first time learns to write. How is taught to write? That someone, his parents or the teacher will write the alphabets in a page and they will ask the child to scribble, to just go on scribbling over the already written alphabets. That's how we learn writing. So Swamiji, when he was asked that, What are the uh, procedures we have to follow to get spiritually enlightened? Swami Vivekananda said that we have done more than that has to be done. Just go on scribbling over our life. Just go on scribbling and your life will be formed. Just the way we write, uh, go on scribbling over the alphabets. Someone else has written. And we learn writing similarly. We can write the script of our life, a meaningful script of our life by scribbling over the lives of this realized soul. So there, this appearance, it may be pillowcase for them, but it becomes an inspiration for us. So that's the thing. The master, after saying, just as it's a pillowcase, he will continue. He's continuing to say what? But you should remember that the heart of the devotee is the abode of God. He dwells no doubt in all beings, but he specially manifests himself in the heart of the devotee. So here, Srinamakish is indicating that in, is the, though that body is a pillowcase, but the one which is enshrined in the body, the one who is enshrined in the body is none but the God and God alone. Just as in the shrine, you have a sanctum sanctorum. So this body is like the shrine. It has a sanctum sanctorum, it's the heart. And this allegory is really used in the architecture of any any of the temples. In any Indian temple, if you go, you will find that the sanctum sanctorum, where the image is, the deity is there. The temple may be a huge complex. But the sanctum Sanctorum is a very small place and that also as per the tradition temple is is considered, it's dark. There is no such light. If you have to see the deity, they will just light a lamp and with the lamp, you have to see the deity. Now the things are changing, there's electric lines have gone, but the traditional way was, it is dark. And if you see the sanctum Sanctorum, you will find that it has nine doors in all the traditional temples. What's the idea? It's actually, this temple is nothing but it is the representation of the human body. This human body has nine doors. What are those nine doors? Two eyes, two ears, two nostrils, six, the mouth, seven, and the organ of evacuation, and the organ of uh, reproduction. So these are the seven doors to the body. And within that body, Navadware Pure Dehi. This body is like a city with, is a Puri. is like a city with seven doors. This seven, And within that seven doors, the Dehi is sitting. Navadware Pure Dehi. The Lord is sitting there. So that's the idea which Sri Ramakrishna is indicating that this body this may be a pillowcase, but the Lord is enshrined there. This nine, this nine gets as long as it is open. There is another door which is in the heart, in the sanctum sanctorum. You will find that when anything is offered to the deity in the sanctum sanctorum, when the offering is going on, all the nine doors are closed. Sometimes you go to the temple and you find that the sanctums, all the doors of the sanctum centrum is closed. And you ask why the doors are closed. Is the temple, uh, will, won't will open now? And they will say, no, you have to wait. Offering is going on. So when you are offering to the deity, you are commun- in communion with the deity, all the nine doors has to be closed. What that means, as long as these nine doors, the two eyes, the two ears, the mouth, organ of evacuation, organ of excretion, is an interaction with the world. There's another door in the inner sanctum, sanctum in the heart, that won't open. Just as if you have to go to a operation theater, you will find that to avoid infection, the spread of infection, there are two doors. Just to maintain that, to sterilize the atmosphere there are two doors when you are entering through the first door the second door is closed when you are between the two doors you apply uh, the sanitizers and everything so that you disinfectify you 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 apply disinfectants so that you won't carry the germs inside and then you push the second door by that time the first door is already closed so these two doors are never open together so similarly In our body, as long as these nine doors are open, the door which is in the sanctum sanctorum, in the inner chamber of our heart, it is closed. We can never realize that God is sitting there. So, for the only way is that first you have to stop the interaction with the world, dive deep within, and then you will find that God is dwelling there. This yourself can be realized there. He's sitting. In the core of your being. So, so that's the thing which Ramakrishna is saying. But you should remember that the heart of a devotee is the abode of God. It's not only the heart of a devotee. Everyone's heart is the abode of God. It's only we don't know. That's in some other place Sri Ramakrishna is saying that God resides in everyone's heart. Then who is a devotee? He's residing in us. But who is a devotee? Very nicely, Ramakrishna is saying, one who resides in him, he resides in us. But do we reside in him? If we reside in him, then we become the devotee. And that's the only ways that when I stop my interaction with the world, dive deep within, and then only the door of the heart opens and I can see the God is dwelling there. He stays, God is all pervasive. He is omnipresent. But where can I find him? I can find him in the heart of the devotee. See, Ramakrishna's examples are wonderful. He says that the heart of a devotee is the living room, is the living room of God. Just in your house, you have the bedroom, you have the study, you have the dining room, kitchen. There's so many places are there. But when someone comes to meet you, you meet him in the living room. So you have access to every portion of your house, but you meet someone in the living room. So Sri Ramakrishna is saying that the devotee's heart is God's living room, he's everywhere, but he can be felt in the heart. So that's the place where God can be realized. So that's the thing Sri Ramakrishna is saying. That light is everywhere, but to see it, the eyes is the organ. Sound is everywhere. When I speak, it is everywhere. But to hear, the ears are the organ. Similarly, God is everywhere. But where can I realize him? In the heart. That's the dwelling place. So that's why he's saying that this body may be the pillowcase, but within that, in the heart of each and every being, is the God. The God's dwelling place is the heart. God is the heart of the devotee. So he dwells no doubt in all beings, but he specially manifests himself in the heart of the devotee. A landlord may at one time or another visit all parts of his estate, but people say he is generally to be found in a particular drawing room. There's a living room. The heart of the devotee is the drawing room of God. He who is called Brahman by the jnanis is known as Atman by the yogis. And as Bhagavan by the Bhaktas. So this is again the concept of synthesis this, which we find in Sri Ramakrishna. But how nicely is saying that the jnanis, the same reality which the jnanis call as Brahman is being called as Atman by the yogis or the paramatman by the yogis and bhagavan by the bhaktas. So what's the difference between Brahman, Atman, and Bhagavan, Bhagavan means God. To understand that, let us try to uh, understand it with the help of some allegory. That we find that when, that in the sky, sometimes we see the rainbow. When you see the rainbow, know it for certain when the rainbow can be seen in the sky? When? The sun, when the sun is visible and at the same time, the rain is falling. Generally, when the rain is there, the sky is cloudy, but sometimes it so happens that the cloud has mean, uh, blown off the sky, it is, is, the sun is visible and the rain is still falling, then the rainbow is visible in the sky. Or sometimes when the sun is there and the rain, though the rain is not falling, but there is some mist. Then also you can see the rainbow. How the rainbow is formed? That when the rain is falling, that each and every raindrop becomes like a prism. Their prism, as we know, a prism breaks the white light into the seven colors, the spectrum. The rainbow is nothing but the spectrum of seven colors. Just the way the prism breaks the white light into seven colors, the sun rays is falling on each and every raindrop and that raindrop is acting like a prism where it breaks into the seven colors. Now all this collectively, all these raindrops, collectively projecting the seven colors appears in the sky, projects in the sky as the rainbow. Now that when the raindrops are falling, The sun is getting reflected in the raindrops. Each and every reflection is like the Atman. The raindrop is the individual soul. The reflection in each and every raindrop of the sun is the Atman. And what is Bhagawan? That rainbow, that something permanent like the sun, which is not moving, which is there in the sky. When it gets reflected in something, which is a constant flow. The raindrops are constantly falling. It is ephemeral. But when something permanent falls on that to give the impression, the projection of the rainbow, which appears to be permanent. So that's the example Swami Vivekananda is using when he went to the Niagara Falls. The sun is the Brahman. The reflection in the mist, which is formed constantly in the when the, rain water, when the waterfalls of the Niagara is falls down and it's, is sprayed, it is sprayed, as it is falling from a big height, it is rebounded back in spray. And in that spray, the sunlight form, falls, in that mist, the sunlight falls to create that rainbow, which is always there, whenever you go there. Swami Vivekananda seeing that immediately, that he made an allegory. What's the allegory? The sun is the brahman. This mist which is formed are the jivas, which is is ephemeral, which is constantly flowing. And the rainbow is Bhagavan, is the god. Swami Vivekananda very nicely defined this god. What is god? It is the highest reading of the absolute. Why it is the highest reading? There's something permanent getting reflected which is not permanent. There are two reflections, all the raindrops as an individual reflection of the sun. But the collective one, that's the highest reading. That's in the, that finds expression, that's being projected as the rainbow. So that's the highest reading of the absolute. The rainbow appears to be eternal as in the Niagara Falls, it is always there. But is it eternal? No, if the mist is not there, if the falls gets dried then the rainbow will vanish. But will the sun vanish? No, the sun is still there. So when the creation is not there, as per Advaita Vedanta, God is not there, but the Brahman is always there. Brahman is, God is as long as the creation is there. Creation, the creator and the created, this duality comes into existence with the creation. But when there's nothing called creation, beyond the creation, there is something which is eternally existent. And that is the Brahman. The Brahman appears as the Paramatman within the as the reflected consciousness principle in each and every individual being. And that as a collective appears as the Bhagavan. So everywhere, this all the three things, within the rainbow, the reflection in the sun, and the sun itself, this, these three are apart from the raindrop they speak of the illumination. The sun's illumination being projected as the reflection and as well as the raindrop. So they're the projection of the sun. So if I take the reflection as my essence, like a yogi, I am just trying to negate the raindrop. All the three, what they're doing, that they all the three, the one who is constantly meditating on the Brahman, that this reflection, this projection is unreal. What he's negating he's negating the raindrop, which is our body mind complex. He's negating that he's trying to identify with the sun, the one who is meditating on the Paramatman. He's taking the reflection of the sun to be real. And in the process, negating the raindrop, the psychophysical existence that I am not this psychophysical existence, and that reflection, which is nothing but the reflection of the sun. So though it is not the exact sun, and it is a reflection of the sun. But in the process, I'm negating the raindrop, that I'm not the raindrop. And when I say that I am a devotee of the God, again, the same thing. I'm not the raindrop. I am in eternal relationship with the rainbow, with God. So what, in whatever attitude I may try to relate to the divine, the common factor is I negate, I deny the fact that I am this limited psychophysical existence. It is just a flow, like a raindrop. As long as it is falling from the sky till it meets the ground, its existence is. Once it touches the ground, the raindrop is no more there. So, as a raindrop, I am perishable. It's no more there. But as the sun or its reflection, whatever it may be, I am eternal. The reflection may not be eternal. When the raindrop is not there, where that reflection has gone, where the rainbow has gone, it has become one with the sun. So if you deny your existence as the limited psychophysical existence, in whatever way you may relate to the sun or its reflection or its projection of the rainbow, you are transcending this phenomenal existence. So that's the thing which now Sri Ramakrishna is trying to just explain that he who is called Brahman by the jnanis is known as Atman by the yogis and as Bhagavan by the bhaktas. The same Brahmin is called priest when worshipping in the temple and cook when preparing a meal in the kitchen. The jnani sticking to the path of knowledge always reasons about the reality saying not this, not this. Brahman is neither this nor that. It is neither the universe nor its living beings. Reasoning in this way The mind becomes steady, then it disappears and the aspirant goes into Samadhi. This is the knowledge of Brahman. It is the unwavering conviction of the jnani that Brahman alone is real and the world illusory. All these names and forms are illusory like a dream. What Brahman is cannot be described. One cannot even say that Brahman is a person. This is the opinion of the jnanis, the followers, of Vedanta philosophy. As long as the eternal conscious principle is in association with the mind, the mind becomes conscious by being in association with the conscious principle. We think the mind is conscious, but it is the borrowed consciousness, the consciousness of Brahman. When we go beyond the mind in deep Samadhi, then only we can realize that this mind is also inert. It gets illumined because of the conscious principle. But what conscious principle alone is, we can never never understand. That's what is being meant is we cannot even say that Brahman is a person. Why? That we can know the conscious principle only when it is reflected. Just the way, can we see light? We can never see light. You say now the room is illumined. Actually the objects are illumined, the light itself is not visible. When the light falls on an object, then that object becomes visible and I say that light is there. So can I see light? I cannot see light. The existence of the light can be proven only when it is illumining some object. Can I ever see gravity? Can I ever sense gravity? No. Gravity can be experienced only when there's a falling object. Then I say, oh, there is gravity. Gravity by itself can never be perceived. Light by itself can never be perceived. So similarly, as when the Brahman is illumining the world, when I, then I can say that there is Brahman. But I, as such, as such the conscious principle by itself can never be known. There's a very nice way Sri Ramakrishna gives this example in some other context. It is to Girish, he asks one day, Girish Khor, suppose there are 10 pots and each pot is filled with water and the sun is being reflected in the 10 pots. So now he asks Girish that how many reflections are there? That that then the Giri says that there are ten, the sun is there and there are 10 reflections. Now Sri Ramakrishna says, I break one pot. How many reflections are there? Nine pots, nine reflections and the sun. So that way Sri Ramakrishna continues. And at last he says there is only one pot and there is the sun. Now he asks that, what can you see? This, yes, I can see the sun. And one reflection. And then Ramakrishna last says that I break the last pot too. What do you see? Girish immediately replies, I can see only the sun. Sri Ramakrishna immediately responds by saying, You cannot say that. You can, as long as the reflection is there, you can know the sun. Without reflection, you can never, even never comprehend existence of the sun. So the same idea, this Brahman cannot be described. It can be, it is, its existence is known when it's reflected in something. That's what the idea with which the Drik, Drishya Viveka starts. That with my eyes, I see the world, but can I see my own eyes? With my eyes, no. So the Drik and the Drishya, this is the main distinction. The subject is always unknown, The sub, with the subject, I can see the object, but the subject itself cannot be seen. So with my eyes, I can see the world, but I cannot see my own eyes. When a small child, when Swami Vivekananda was in the West, he was meditating. He was the guest of some, this American devotee, and he was meditating. A small child of that house, he never knew that what meditation is. Seeing Swami Vivekananda sitting still, he simply came and sat on his lap. Now Swami Vivekananda naturally came out of his meditation. As this child was sitting on his lap, he came out of his meditation and he looked at the child and the child had a question. He asked, very directly, bluntly asked whether God is, is there really God exists, whether God is? Swami Vivekananda calmly patting the child, told, yes, my child, God is. And the very next question the child asked, then why cannot I see him? And Swamiji immediately replied, Can you see your own eyes? So, what a nice answer to a small child that can you see your own eyes? It exists. But as it is the subject with which I see the ob- objects, it cannot be objectified. The moment it is objectified, how can I know the presence of my eyes? Because all the things which I see my eyes is again synthesized in my mind it is all cogitated by my mind there it goes all the pictures what i see is being cogitated by the mind so as the mind is behind the eyes there i can with the help of my mind i can be aware of my eyes again all the things which i in are in my mind there's the thing i know i'm aware of those things but that's the difference between a uh, and Artificial intelligence and human being. If this, if you ask a question to an artificial intelligence, most probably it will answer. It has been programmed in such a way it will answer. It will respond. If you ask him to do some work, it will do. But does that AI that robot knows that it is doing something that self awareness. Is it there That's a big question? That's a hard question of consciousness. It doesn't know. So. We know that when I'm thinking, I know I'm thinking that someone is there behind my thought. Who is that? That can never be known. If I know that, then that again becomes the object. So the ultimate subject can never be known. So but its existence is comprehensible by the fact that something is illuminating my mind and through the mind, my senses, and through the senses, the entire world. So I can negate them. To get identified with them, with it, to get identified with it. I can get identified with it. I can realize it, but I can never explain it. It is experienceable but never describable. As Ramakrishna used to say, Kamungi na jamungi. That what's the taste of the clarified butter? You all have tested clarified butter. Can you explain? We cannot explain. It has a test. But as it does not, it, it, the taste doesn't conform to all the so-called, this, this calibrations of tastes we have, we don't know how to explain. So it is something experienceable, but never describable. So that's the thing Sri Ramakrishna is speaking here, that at last by negating everything, the jnani gets identified with the Brahman. But what it is, it can never be described. One can get identified with with it, but one can never describe it. So one cannot even say that Brahman is a person. This is the opinion of the Gyanis, the followers of Vedanta philosophy. After saying that Sri Ramakrishna is now speaking about the Bhaktas, but the Bhaktas accept all the states of consciousness. They take the waking state to be real also. They don't think the world to be illusory like a dream. They say that the universe is a manifestation of God's power and glory. God has created all these sky, stars, moon, sun, mountains, ocean, men, animals. They constitute his glory. He's within us in our hearts. Again, he's outside. The most advanced devotees say that he himself has become all this the 24 cosmic principles, the universe, and all living beings. The devotee of God wants to eat sugar, not to become sugar. So very nice. This is just the way you're looking at the reality. In Sanskrit, all the various philosophies are called darsana. The exact translation of darshana is not philosophy. The exact translation of darshana is perspective. The same building where I am sitting now, if you look, if you take a photo from the east, take another photo, picture from the west, another picture from the north, another picture from the south, the same building, all the pictures will be different from which angle you're taking the picture. So the same reality appears as many as per our paradigm, as per the, our angle of vision. A when something is reflected, just the example. Let us take the when the sun is reflected on the raindrops to be to uh, uh, to appear as the rainbow. I may say the rainbow is unreal. The it is only a reflection. When the raindrop is not there, everything merges with the sun uh, with the sun only. The rainbow, if the raindrop is not there, the rainbow has gone. It has merged with the sun. So the sun alone is real. Everything is illusory. There is one way of saying. But the Bhakta will say, no. When the rains are falling, the sun is getting reflected. It is God's Leela. It is his plan that the rain should fall on that. That sun will get reflected to get reflected as the rainbow. It is his plan. It is his Leela. Why he is doing that? Through that, he is just as a way, the small child, a small child is always happy. How does he express that? How does, how you know that he's always happy? You will find that he's constantly making and unmaking. If you give him a, just a, a, a plot of clay, he will make so many models and again, break it, again, make it, there's no purpose, just the expression of life, expression of joy, it finds expression through all those making and unmaking. So this God is Anandamaya. He's full of bliss. His creation is the expression of his bliss. So why should I just deny by saying that this is not there? It is his plan. It is that through which He is finding expression. Then the Bhakta when he takes the world as real, we should always think, understand that He's taking the world as real as the projection of the consciousness, not as the material world. That, that rainbow is nothing but the projection of the sun rays. So he's in no way taking the so-called uh, the raindrop or the, uh, the rainbow as the ultimate reality. He knows, he knows, very, he's aware of the fact that this wonderful rainbow which is, um, which is in the sky Though it is something which is not the ultimate, but it is God's plan that through his creation, he's finding expression as this. So what's the harm in enjoying it, knowing it for well, that it is that ultimate reality, in essence, it is the ultimate reality, which is finding expression as the universe. So this is the state of Vijnani. Sri Ramakrishna is to say that when you go to that realization and come back, first you go through the negation. He used to give an example. He used to say when you're climbing the stairs, you are as if denying the lower stair, going to the upper stair. So you are negating the stairs one by one. And at last you reach the roof. When you reach the roof, then you realize the material with which each and every stair is made is the same material with which the roof is met. Then when you come down, there is a sense of this unity. What? That though the steps appear to be different from the roof, but they're made of the same material. It's the same material with which the roof is made. It's the same material with which the terrace is made. So first by negation, you go to the realization, and then you come back from your realization to realize that this world is nothing but God and God alone. It, this world gets defied. So then you can, all our... Misery is because we take the world to be real as it is. If I take the world, which is a constant flow to be real, then we are bound to suffer because it's a flow. But if I am aware of the fact that though it is a flow, it is God alone who is finding expression in the varied way. Everything is changing, but behind the change that as essence, he is this one who is finding expression as this world, as is lila, As Ramakrishna used to uh, relate one, uh, uh, that one incident, that in Dakshineshwar, one mad person was there for some time. Everyone took him to be mad. He always used to move around with a chandelier in his hand, a small chandelier, and he will just laugh by saying, kya maya hai, kya devi maya hai. No one used to understand, Ramakrishna understood. What that he actually have realized, what that this world is a projection of the ultimate Brahman and Brahman alone, that just the way the chandelier in which the sun's rays falls and the light, there's a play of light and shed as, it, as its reflection. This play of light and shed is nothing but the sunlight being projected as this light and shed through the chandelier. This world is something like that. So it is that same reality which is finding expression as this universe, and just taking the chandelier in his hand, he will rotate it and see the reflection of this play of sun and light, and go on laughing and saying, "Kya devi maya hai?" It is the God's maya finding expression as a creation. That was his sadhana. So here, Sri Ramakrishna is also saying the same thing that if you don't take the world as a as a reality, if you see the God behind that. As all this change which is going on through the world is God, which is finding expression as the universe. Then your total perspective change. You do not have to deny. You can uh, be aware of this universe, aware of the phenomenal existence, but you can see the God in it alone and your total uh, perspective changes and the suffering falls off because you are in no more relating to the flow you're relating to the essence behind the flow. And that's what Sri Ramakrishna is saying that bhaktas accept all the states of consciousness. They take the waking step to be real. That also is a projection of that ultimate reality. They don't think the world to be illusory like a dream. They say that the universe is a manifestation of God's power and glory. It is his power and his glory. It is he is finding expression as the universe. It is he who intends to be projected as the universe For what's the reason that we may not know but it is his power it is his power it is his glory that he can manifest himself as this universe so god has created all the sky, stars moon sun mountains ocean men and elements they constitute his glory he's within us in our hearts so he's outside in this universe again he's in the heart again he's outside The most advanced devotees say that he himself has become all this, the 24 cosmic principles, the universe and all the beings. The devotee of God wants to eat sugar, not to become sugar. It's something like that. So just let us try to understand this idea with an allegory. Suppose there's a vast expanse of land and seeing that, that the government thinks a group of people thinks who are the administrators, the rulers that let us build a city there, a wonderful city. So now to build a city, there has to be an architect, a, a town planner who prepares a, the blueprint of the entire landscape that has to be developed. We prepare a blueprint for the materials are yet to come. The blueprint is prepared, then all the materials comes and the huge city is built. And after the city is built, there are some landmarks. Like if you go to Sydney, there is the Opera House. So now uh, the Harbor Bridge, the Opera House, now to see this Harbor Bridge and Opera House, there are various viewpoints. From various viewpoints, you can see that you can just all these observing points are like the individual beings. So now this example, uh, let us try to understand that if you now just think that the the one who plans that let there be a big city, the same one is the architecture. He only prepares the blueprint. After preparing the blueprint, all the materials are he, he, he and he alone. And with the materials, when the city has been built, all the observing points. Again, it is He and He alone who becomes observing points, and not only that, that the one who is uh, sitting in the observing po- uh, uh, this, uh, towers and observing, it is also He. So he, after creating, He has entered into each and every being and is enjoying His own creation. Tat srishtva tat eva After creating, he has entered into the creation to enjoy his own creation. This idea we will find in the Tagore's poems, wonderfully depicted. That Jogotir Ananda Jogya Amani Mantra. That a huge yagya is going on. The stars, the galaxies, the God has given a huge fist. That try to, just let us try to understand this, that suppose, It's your birthday today, and you want, uh, and you just want to treat, give a big treat to all your relatives and friends. So you arrange uh, this this lot of food, delicacies, and you have invited your friends, but no one turns out. How will you feel? You will feel extremely, you will feel extremely dejected. So it's only that huge arrangement is all for the guests. If they don't come, you feel rejected. So similarly, God, out of God himself, this all the stars, galaxies, everything has been created. At last he created human being so that sitting within him, he enjoys his own creation. So Jagote Ananda Amar Amarni Mantra. So I have been invited in this huge fist. God has created this And I'm not an insignificant being. At last, I'm the guest of God. And I'm not separate from God. God has created me separate from him just to enjoy. So that's to have a sense uh, that the sense of duality is for enjoyment. So as a guest, I am invited so that I can enjoy. So it is all God's Leela. So that's how the devotee tried to relate with the creation. He's not happy with negating and becoming one with the Ultimate reality. That's why the devotee of God wants to eat sugar and not to become sugar. All love. Just see, Sri Ramakrishna, this wonderful capacity that in his very simple words, he is speaking of the profound scriptures. Not a single word in the gospel is. Apart from the Vedas and the Vedanta, actually his realization has transcended, transcended the Vedas and the Vedanta. That's Swami Vivekananda used to say it is so profound. In the simple, the words are so simple. We sometimes just miss that what the real uh, philosophy is behind it. He's speaking the philosophy which even transcends the Vedas and Vedantas. You cannot. You will find a wonderful synthesis he has made. He's not speaking of any particular philosophy. One darshana, in his vision, all the these darshanas has become the ingredients for a wonderful, what you say, this a dish he's preparing, and he's creating a wonderful uh, that you say this, uh, this uh, the structure of reality, the idea of reality, from his synthetic vision, and that we will find in his words. As he goes through his discussion, we'll find how nicely he's synthesizing these various philosophies to give a overhaul, this overall a synthetic approach to view the reality. So with this, we stop our discussion today. We'll continue with the conversation of Ramakrishna with the brahmo devotees again in the next class. Thank you all. Namaskars.